Hey friends, this is Mike from Theology on Mission podcast and a disclaimer. This podcast episode is pretty heady. Fitch has been geeking out for the last few weeks about this book by Andrew Draper called A Theology of Race and Place. So Andrew kindly joined us on the podcast. If you don't know Andrew, he is a pastor down in Muncie, Indiana not too far from Chicago. His book surveys the work of two prominent and contemporary black theologians, J. Cameron Carter and Willie Jennings. Both Carter and Jennings uh, investigate this interplay between racial imagination and Christian theology. I myself am still working through Andrew's book, so I sat back and enjoyed this episode a little more as a listener, less as a co-host. But we hope that this episode is uh, informative and formative uh, for you and for your ministry. Keep your ears peeled. We have a few more episodes coming out soon. And as always, love to have you come and join us at Northern Seminary. That sounds interesting to you. Shoot me an email at mdmore at seminary.edu. Okay, friends, thanks for listening. Hey everybody, it's uh, Theology on Mission podcast and we're back, Northern Live. Actually, it's not Northern Live because Northern Live is our term for the actual in-classroom mm-hmm. learning. That's stuff. right, that's right. We're changing some so things around. at Northern Seminary. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And it's so good to be back. It's, uh, what, a week away or two weeks away from commencement? That's right. Um, we're working very hard here. Uh, I've got like four dissertations. I still got a grade. Mm-hmm. I have uh, from you on that one, Mike Moore. I have uh, ten master's theses that I'm looking at over here in a pile. I have to grade, okay, have to grade those uh, too. I want to just say four uh, doctoral dissertations. One doctoral dissertation equals five master's theses. <laughs> Come on. So, uh, according to my arithmetic, I have yeah, five times. Yeah, <laughs> your arithmetic's a little off there, but okay. <laughs> well, anyways, we're so glad to be back here. And, you know, we've been a little off our game because we have. we've been so busy. A lot going on here, including doctoral seminars and teaching and classes and and dissertations and oral exams. But uh, we snuck a Theology on Mission podcast in. Yeah, And we're so grateful to have our guest uh, visiting with us from Muncie, Indiana. I love Muncie, Indiana. I don't know if you've ever been there to Muncie, Indiana, Mike Moore. Have you ever been there? Just drove through it. That's all. Oh, well, I've actually been there. Uh, I, I want to talk to Andrew uh, uh, Draper, our guest today, about, about Muncie at some other time, not on the air because I have a lot of stories. but uh, and, and they're not appropriate for pub- public uh, whatever. But anyways, uh, Andrew is the founding pastor, senior pastor of Urban Light Community Church in Muncie, and he is assistant professor of theology at Taylor University in Upland, Indiana, a fine place, by the way, mm-hmm. out in the middle of the cornfields of uh, Indiana. 
And uh, Andrew, welcome to the show. Good to have you on. Thank you. It's good to be here. And uh, I appreciate the invitation. And actually, my uh, role at Taylor was a contract position for several years. And so I'm currently teaching adjunct a few different places, but not currently uh, at Taylor at the moment. Gotcha. Oh, okay. Well, I'm reading off the back of uh, of your book. Uh, by the way, it's important to just mention the book, A Theology of Race and Place, Liberation and Reconciliation in the Works of Jennings and Carter. But folks, if you are looking for a professor of systematic theology, <laughs> I just want to highly recommend Andrew Draper. This man has done some incredible and an outstanding scholarship. And I'm not just yeah. blowing smoke here, folks. This book has been a, a, a real game changer just in the way it has exhaustively uh, treated uh, and and gone through the streams of the theology of race and and the status and the way black theology is shaping here in the last 15 years. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. So once again, Andrew Draper, glad to have you on the show. It's true. Thank you. It's good yes. to be here. Uh, for, for the last couple of weeks, every time Fitch comes comes into the office, he keeps talking about this book. So, so he, he's not making it up. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad that I'm glad that somebody's reading it. <laughs> Look, we, we all know uh, the sign of a good book is not how many people read it, That's but right. who. Okay, so anyway, <laughs> I'll, I'll take that. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, so uh, let's start out with the question, Andrew. How did you get interested in the theology of race? What drove you to such an intense study uh, uh, in your doctoral work? It was advanced by my pastoral work and living in community in a post-industrial context in the Midwest and working for um, racial reconciliation and justice work and recognizing sort of the, the ways in which my own white evangelical upbringing had produced some malformations or at least um, a lack of resources for appropriately thinking about reconciliation theologically. And uh, uh, I, I found that that my imagination was limited and the resources that I had to draw on um, were best found in African-American church traditions. And my doctoral studies um, centered on the work of Willie James Jennings and J. Cameron Carter, who were both very helpful interlocutors for me as I was uh, trying to more appropriately and accurately think about the intersections of theology and race. Yeah. And so um, you, uh, I don't remember. So you were at, uh, Saint, is it uh, St. Andrews? I'm sorry. Uh, Aberdeen. Yeah. University Aberdeen. of Aberdeen. Okay. Both begin with an A. They're both in Scotland. And they're, they're both, both in Scotland. S- yeah, Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. And so uh, it's, it's, uh, it's amazing what this book does. Um, you know, most of us who did our doctorate work in the 90s, 2000s, uh, James Cone kind of defined the field of black contextual theology, uh, liberate black liberation theology, black power. And uh, it really kind of started a whole move uh, after the civil rights era. Um, and uh, here we meet, uh, I don't know if 
this is the way to properly talk about uh, Jennings and and Bantam and uh, J. Cameron Carter, but there's just a new emerging school of theology of race. And uh, can you place Jennings, Carter, Bantam, others in that history for us? What happened uh, in the move from Cohn to uh, Jennings and Carter? Sure. Um, I, I don't know how much of an authority I am to place them or to describe them in ways that having spoken with each of them, I, I assume that certain descriptions would not be welcome and appropriately so. Um, I think, you know, they each have their particularities that make distinct contributions to theology. And I think one of the I think one of the strong points about especially Jennings theology, but in other ways, uh, J. Cameron Carter's and Brian Bantam's theology is that while they are open to and animated by contextual interests in many ways, I don't, I don't think they're interested in limiting the scope of their thinking to what was traditionally categorized as quote unquote black theology. Um, you know, I, I know especially J. Cameron Carter uh, speaks regularly about uh, standing on the shoulders of the liberation work that went on before him, especially uh, that of James Cone. Uh, we know that James Cone, uh, before he uh, passed, was appreciative of Carter's work. Um, but I think that Jennings... Carter and Bantam in important ways uh, stand distinct from the tradition of black liberation theology in ways that are more helpful for thinking about the theological genesis of race in, in ways that, that call us to take seriously the history of race in the West while not being forever locked into the kind of binary categories that certain strands in white theology uh, have tended to create. Yeah. Um, one, of the, one of the struggles here, uh, and we are, by the way, uh, for those of you listening, Willie Jennings is coming to Northern Seminary to deliver the theology and mission lectures in June, 2022. And we're all excited about that. But one of the struggles of teaching graduate students theology um, is, uh, how do I put this? Uh, the texts of J. Cameron Carter, and I would say also Willie Jennings, are intense, are demanding. And so we need we need a way to get, uh, by the way, I would say that uh, they're demanding in a way which my, I don't think my students find James Cone. Uh, I, th I think James Cone, especially his more popular works like the, the lynching tree book of, of 10 years, eight, 10 years ago, the cross and the lynching tree, uh, was more accessible. I mean, how do you gain access into these important works by J. Cameron Carter and Willie Jennings? Is there some entry ways that you can help us, uh, with uh, Andrew? Sure. I mean, they, they are doing academic theology. So it is, um, as with any discipline, 
there are learned linguistic structures and terms, um, you know, especially Willie Jennings and J. Cameron Carter are very conversant with the tradition, while at the same time recognizing uh, some of the distortions that grew alongside orthodoxy that allowed for the kind of racialization that, that we understand today in the West um, or live, live in today in the West. Um, so I agree that it can be difficult to enter into any uh, serious discourse without some of the necessary tools. Um, there are several more accessible works lately that I think especially Willie Jennings is pushing into uh, that would be helpful, perhaps, as an entry point. Uh, there's, of course, his commentary on the Book of Acts, which is masterful. Um, he, you get more of a feeling of uh, his personality and the issues that interest him and what drives his theological inquiry in, in that theological commentary. Uh, also, he has a recent book out about uh, education, and he, in that book, sort of tries to take us behind the veil of conversations in higher education and does so with um, a lot more uh, stories and uh, anecdotes and uh examples that I think would be a bit more accessible for a master's student. Um, but it is true that, you know, um, uh, the Christian imagination and race, a theological account are both uh, obviously academic contributions and um, as so uh, re require a bit of onboarding <laughs> perhaps. Yes, I, I would suggest starting with, with, perhaps some of Jennings' more recent work to kind of get a sense of his theological program because there's things left unsaid in a Christian in the Christian imagination, things that are implicit there that you have to know the conversation of what's already going on in order to understand the categories that he's working in. Yes, there are two very monumental works. <clears throat> and uh, <clears throat> uh, Mike Moore, do you remember that uh, piece that uh, Willie Jennings published in the Duke Divinity mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> yep. uh, magazine. Yep. Maybe we can put that on the show notes. Uh, there's show notes means uh, what, what uh, on that page that we have the uh, podcast. Uh, but um, yes. So um, uh, in, in, I think J Cam Cameron Carter's work, and I think you uh, also talk like this, uh, Andrew, you know, enlightenment, secularism, Protestant liberalism slash evangelical fundamentalism, they both kind of sustain or harbor a racialized imagination. They, they, uh, they're fundamentally racialized in their vision. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and yet, uh, so many, um, people begin their, their journey to, uh, become, uh, at activists, advocates for social justice, racial reconciliation, et cetera, in those traditions. Mm -hmm. What's the danger there? And, and what does Jennings, what does Carter help? How do they help us get yeah. out of the frame? Yeah, I think that's helpful. I mean, 
it's a, it's a good question. Let, let me talk a little bit about my own journey being raised in white evangelical spaces and some of the dangers and helpful moments, perhaps not too in detail, but just a brief thumbnail sketch. Uh, having grown up in the church, my father being in theological education and pastoral ministry, um, you know, I was at every youth function and conference and uh, when the doors of the church were open, I was there uh, from an early age and I was accustomed to thinking in terms of mission or in mission in terms that were fundamentally racialized. Now, many would push back on that, I'm sure, and, and hesitate to describe it in those terms, but the sort of language that is popular around discussions of Christian mission in evangelical circles often betrays some of the assumptions. So for instance, we talk about um, ethnic ministry as ministry to folks who are not white, which is tied in, of course, to Jennings' contention that supersessionism or replacement theology is what animates racialization. So in other words, we see white as raceless and neutral, sort of the, the center of, of Christian inquiry and other peoples as existing somewhere at the margins or peripheries in, in the space of what the New Testament calls the ethnos, right? The Gentiles or those without. And, and so you can hear that in the way that, you know, um, the kind of conversations that go on in missional church conversations often, and again, I'm, I'm very much a product of uh, missional church thinking, and, I'm, and I am in no way downplaying the need for Christians to be part of God's redeeming mission in the world. But the way that that theology has been conceptualized and presented often orbits around a racialized understanding, and, and you see that in conversations such as, well, what about the, you know, African tribe who's never heard of Jesus? Or what about, you know, um, uh, the urban mission where, you know, uh, we are bringing the gospel to them through, you know, vacation Bible studies or whatever the case might be. It's, it's that sort of imagination that explicitly positions uh, non-white peoples, black and brown peoples as recipients of Christian mission as opposed to agents in, in a way that, that betrays that we still think of Christian identity as fundamentally white and Western, mm. uh, even beyond skin color. This isn't just a, a, a skin color uh, designation, you know, as, as a, uh, 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 someone who is pigmently challenged as I am, um, you know, it's, it's not, um, it's not that there is something biologically intrinsic to skin color that, you know, forces us into thinking, uh, certain ways about theological constructs. It's rather that we've been enculturated into and deeply formed into, um, certain habits of mind. And I think it's those patterns of mind that Jennings came to recognize 
being educated in white evangelical spaces and teaching in white evangelical spaces. And that shaped my own formation. So that when I first moved to our community, which is an ethnically diverse community, and started to think about racial reconciliation, especially along the black-white line, what W.E. Du Bois calls the color line, I did not have an appropriate framework in which to think about what reconciliation meant and what I was actually a part of. Um, you know, it, it was still by and large a framework of, so, so let, let, me, let me give a story. I was reading Ephesians 2 early on in my journey. I've been here now for uh, 17 years in our community and early on in the life of our church, I was trying to think theologically about racial reconciliation and reading Ephesians 2 about the two becoming one, you know, Jews and Gentiles becoming one, Christ being the peace who breaks down the dividing wall of hostility and realizing the implications of that for a theology of race, but realizing that I had at the same time no substantive way to position myself in the narrative as other than uh, essentially Jewish centralized identity as the one bringing the gospel and someone else being the recipient. And so, you know, I, I was very accustomed to thinking about multiculturalism or racial reconciliation as, you know, let's invite African Americans to participate in our activities, even though I knew that that was fundamentally paternalistic and I pushed back against it. And I had, I already had some anti-racist kind of progressive convictions at that point, but I, I recognized that I still didn't know how to read the biblical narrative in a way profoundly different from seeing my own white evangelical identity as central in the narrative of mission in an analogical way to Jewish identity being center to a theology of mission in the Bible. Yes. Yes. Uh, Mike Moore, I'm going to dominate this conversation yeah, I uh, because uh, <laughs> uh, I don't want to do it. Uh, but, but this is so um, enlightening. And so uh, uh, the whole uh, reading of the work of Jennings and Carter uh, has really opened up a whole new world of mm. understanding how, race takes shape and and most importantly how theology has been shaped by racism um the word supersessionism that you used earlier and that you are actually alluding to in this story could you explain it in like three easy sentences and tell us why it's so important for the people who are listening to understand this impulse of white euro centric christianity and what it did and how it created race the center sure. Around, Christi, uh, around white Euro Christianity? Yeah, sure. So supersessionism is, can name any... Yeah, four sentences or less, Andrew. <laughs> I, I will. I will. I got you. I got you. All right? Let, 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 <laughs> let me go ahead and formulate it here. I got you. Okay. Supersessionism can name any number of imaginative tendencies, but at its most basic, it sees the Western Gentile church as in some way replacing Israel as the chosen people of God. Now I'm not talking here about the modern nation state of Israel. That's a different theological conversation. I'm talking here about particularity. Yep. 
it jumps straight supersessionism. You jump straight to universality and you forget about the particularity of the salvation narrative. And, and, and there's so much going on there uh, that I wish we could unpack for our listeners. We might have to come back and have Andrew on again yeah. and again and again, maybe five episodes. Uh, <laughs> just think about how uh, the German theology, uh, the Reformation theology, uh, created an understanding of soteriology that said uh, uh, salvation is this uh, atonement that actually puts us against the nomos and the law and the Jewish law, and those are the bad people, and we are the good people. Well, that that would be kind of an example of, of the yeah. And, and you can even go back to early church fathers and read in their works. They're they're trying to wrestle with this idea of if we are set free from the law as followers of Christ, and we don't. And Gentiles do not need to, quote unquote, become Jewish or, you know, have all the the rights of entry into the community, such as circumcision or whatever the case might be. Uh, What does that say about who we are? Are we a separate religion? What, you know, what's going on here? And they're trying to trying to conceptualize it. But for the most part, whether you're reading Augustine or Irenaeus or uh, Tertullian or Justin Martyr, they they all think a little differently about it, but for the most part, their answer revolves something around, well, you know, if you are going to worship Christ, you really need to get rid of uh, the Jewish dietary laws and you need to, you know, come out of that kind of works-based, you know, thinking. And so what they did was they, in my view, they, they functionally turned the Jerusalem council on its head where you know, you have this great theology of mission developing in Acts 15, where Jews are saying, look, in order for Gentiles to worship the Messiah, we are not requiring X, Y, and Z of them. They can still come with their own cultural particularities. But then the early Gentile church started to turn that back around in many ways to say, well, we think that probably Jewish people would be better off if they kind of gave up being Jewish and following the law and and taking part in the feasts and festivals in order to enter into, you know, Christian faith. And so you had, you can even see that nascent sort of uh, comparative religion kind of uh, sensibility developing in, in certain ways in the early church that would become heightened during medievalism. And obviously, as you mentioned, in the Reformation sort of uh, 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 come to its apex, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. So, folks, uh, we're trying to give an introduction here to uh, the the theology of race as uh, developed by Willie Jennings and J. Cameron Carter. Supersessionism is something to understand there. Um, you talk also about a bit about the danger of essentialization or um, I think maybe use the word ontologization of blackness, whiteness within certain forms of of black liberation theology, like maybe certain parts of James Cone. Uh, uh, and so there's a danger there that actually blackness and whiteness gets essentialized and it becomes all the more difficult to disrupt the frame of whiteness. Uh, yeah. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I, I, I'm way into critical theory and, and the problem of... 
seeing race as a framework, not an essentialized uh, category. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is tricky business because on the one sense, or the one hand, we need to seriously deal with living in a world in which we are identified according to racial categories, white and black and brown and in between. And, but even that kind of the logic of that language in between suggests the, and it's, and it's actually brought from the kind of racial categories that you see developing around the time of the reformation, because they were also developing around the time of, of colonization and, and, you know, explore the age of exploration, right? So you've got these European Christians who are, who are going, how do we envision God's world with people who are not, who have not, you know, been exposed to the gospel and also are of different skin tones than us. But the, the direction that most thinkers tended to go was to identify white with Christian and later in the enlightenment with, with relative maturity or advancement. And so you have this idea of savage or primitive as describing other peoples. So, so whiteness and the blackness that whiteness created are constructs that ultimately need to be resisted. At the same time, however, we need people like Cohn who use all of their particularity and their contextual grasp on theology to resist being dominated and classified. So it's kind of like, you know, taking someone's terminology and using it back against them or or what I've heard Jennings describing as using the master's tools to tear the master's house down. You know, there's a real sense in which we even see in the writings of Paul and in the, you know, the, the early church, there are threads that are liberative and read against the way societies were ordered. I mean, you can read Paul, Paul's uh, uh, ideas about the household codes as subtly undermining the way that society was centered around certain bodies. Um, so those strands have been there. We need those liberative strands. But ultimately the essentialization of bodies into racial categories is not a moment that can be lived into forever. It's not, it's not a place that we can remain. We must recognize it and deal with it in order to push into more theologically grounded senses of identities and, and join our identities with one another so that we get a sense of the diversity of God's kingdom you know, and, and so I, I by no means would be resistant to liberation theology, but I, I, alongside Jennings and Carter, read some of the strands as perhaps being overly developed by that which they were reacting against. Hmm. Yeah, and this is, of course, the big problem. And Mike Moore, if you got something to say, just pop in here. If I'm hearing you right, you're saying that identity, identity politics kind of reifies the structures that it's hoping to overcome. Is that, is that accurate? In, in, in some sense, I mean, I, I, I can't help but get the feeling when I'm reading Cone, what happens to 
the um, the identity that he the the, I, the sense of analogy and identity that he wants to build between blackness and um, the oppressed and marginalized and the body of the oppressed Christ. I agree with all of that, that that is an important move to make, but I, I, I cannot help but ask the question, taken alone, does that not over time continue to run the risk of black and brown people being objectified as oppressed mm -hmm. bodies in a sense that will continue to devalue the contributions that all peoples must together make to the kingdom. And, I, and I'm not saying, you know, that I'm at all concerned about my own white identity in that or my position in that, but, but rather I worry that drawing too tight of an analogy between blackness and marginalization hmm. uh, uh, continues to lock people into categories that are not uh, in fact liberative. Hmm. Now I, I mean, I don't think we're anywhere near that, right? I mean, we're we're nowhere near the point that we've done enough work to dismantle white supremacy and racialized thinking that we can say, oh, you know, Cone was enough, Gutierrez was enough, you know, like, no, we, we need to hear their prophetic voices for quite yeah. some time. But, mm -hmm. but, you know, hopefully, I think, and you even see this in Cone's work, he even alludes to in things like God of the Oppressed. He alludes to there might be a time far down the road when some of these categories may not hold the theological weight that I am giving to them today. So, so I even read that recognition in Cone. So, so my concern here about identity politics would not be a reflection against liberation theology as right. much as the sort of popular, uh, uh, you know, watering down of it that just sort of, you know. Uh, it, it essentializes identity categories in a way that 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 will not ultimately help toward their undoing. Yeah, right. And and so uh, you know what what I've learned from critical theory is uh, like how do we uh, decenter whiteness without in fact centering whiteness? You know what I'm saying? In other words, yeah. if uh, we want to be careful about not making everything uh, centered around a reaction and defining ourselves over against whiteness because that further ensconces whiteness into the frame and us into that frame and we can't mm -hmm. escape it. You're right. Uh, You're right. I, I have a, a chapter that's a bit more mature in my thinking and helpful in the IVP academic book, um, Can White People Be Saved? It was a... Uh, a book from the, the um, missiology lectures at Fuller in 2017. And in there, I talk about decentering white identity and recognize some of the same problems that you just mentioned, right? Like, do we ever continue to run the risk of ensconcing, to use your word, whiteness as, you know, further normative in ways that will not be helpful toward resisting it. However, I, I mean, we've got so far to go in this project that I, 
I don't think we're in any danger mm-hmm. uh, of of speaking too critically in some ways. Yeah. All right, Mike Moore, we got to wrap this up soon, uh, but uh, maybe we can uh, have a a rubber meets the road question. Yeah. Um, Why, why should, uh, I'm thinking about all the pastors all over uh, Chicagoland right now. I'm thinking about a lot of black pastors uh, in uh, the West side and South sides of Chicago who are trying to say, what difference does this make? How does, how does this uh, reshape how we engage Injustice and and the the culture. Um, you have this um, phrase. I think it's ecclesiology of joining. Mm-hmm. That's your phrase. And you, I don't know. There's you have this idea of practices that can reshape uh, our imagination for what God wants to do yeah, amidst amidst the injustice. Can you talk a little bit? What difference does this make for the pastors in the Chicago? area sure um i think the danger in seeing let me rephrase this i think the danger in the way that we think about a theology of mission that centers the church and and then decenters people outside the church as recipients i think going beyond race for a moment, just to simply say that if, if we have a too, too formalized of a distinction between church and world, we run the risk of forgetting that we are all, in some sense, guests in God's world. We do not own the world, right? Everything belongs to the Lord, as the psalmist tells us. If that is the case, then even our very bodies being taken from the dust, in some sense, we are dependent on uh, creation and not simply uh, holding dominion over creation, although that is an appropriate theological category. So so I would say for rubber meets the road, we, we as Christians need to think seriously about how are we guests in the communities in which we're located. We've become so used to thinking of ourselves as hosts. And I'm not talking about just getting beyond the four walls. You know, people talk about let's get outside of the four walls because they realize you can't just always invite people in. But even when we get outside of the four walls, we often do things that give little thought to what's already going on in the community. Right. So, you know, if somebody comes in and does a food pantry and hands out food or a, uh, uh, you know, a, an addiction recovery group or a housing renovation project or a vacation Bible school or whatever the case might be, those works are very rarely grown out of deep knowing of the people in one's own context and their needs and partnering together with them in a way that uh, helps Uh, the whole community be empowered to be who God has called them to be. It's still many of those quote missional activities still tend to function around a dichotomy between giver and recipient. And those kind of dichotomies always essentialize power. They always say I'm on one side of the table 
and you are on the other side of the table. And if that's the case, then our relationship is predicated on an imbalance of power. And if our relationship is predicated on an imbalance of power, then if you are empowered, if I'm the giver and you're the recipient and you are empowered, then the terms of our relationship fundamentally change and we have no reason to be in communion any longer. And we see this oftentimes, right? If someone's a recipient of a food pantry or a clothing bank, they're not going to go worship in the same church as, as the people who are giving them that. And then they go, well, you know, the church people go, see, we do all this stuff for the community and we're just martyrs for Jesus. And these people don't even respond. They don't even appreciate it. They don't, even, you know, whatever. But, but what we've done is we have interacted with our context in ways that, that are paternalistic, that, that position ourselves as uh, the center and in charge in a way that works against community. And I think that is Jennings concern with language of reconciliation. If we don't carefully distinguish what we mean by that, we're going to go right back to, and as we usually do, as you've seen with so many problems in multi-ethnic church contexts, we usually go right back to a imbalance of power, centering one cultural perspective over another, requiring assimilation, and so on and so forth. And so many of us as pastors are locked in that way of thinking that we can't even imagine a different world. Wow. And uh, folks, uh, we were just talking about all this stuff last night, mission-shaped church, all this, all the issues of power, the idea of guesthood. And uh, I hate to put a plug in for Northern Seminary. No, I don't hate to do it. But if you're interested <laughs> in studying and thinking through these concepts deeply, uh, contact Mike Moore and talk about the MA in theology and mission, or uh, do our doctoral program in contextual theology. Right, Mike Moore? That's right. Yep. This has been a thick, deep dive conversation, and I have thoroughly enjoyed it, and I feel like we've just scratched the surface. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe we need to do a part two here. Later yeah, on. That would be fun. I, I don't often get to uh, do a deep dive um, so it's, it's, it's always fun when I have a chance to kick things but, back and forth. But here's what I want to do. Now that COVID is kind of dying down a little bit and maybe things are opening up, uh, you and me need to take a drive to Muncie. Yes. And, That'd be and, fun. And we'll have a good time with Andrew Draper. Uh, I don't know if, if you drink wine or, or beer. Uh, I come from a tradition where um, um, I'm allowed one drink and, <laughs> one and have a beer and talk. One and drink. We, we have some great pubs um, uh, here that we could have a nice craft beer or we could, uh, you know, I, I have to be true to my Scottish education. We could have a wee dram uh, <laughs> while you're here. We could have, we could have the, wa- the water of life, you know, we could pour, pour a few whiskeys here. So. Uh, yes. I lived, I lived in Scotland for a year. <laughs> for this holiness preacher, uh, you know, um, we'll have to, you know, pick me up and put me back in the car. Uh, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, uh, we want to thank so much Andrew Draper for being with us for this last half an hour and more. Yes. We really enjoyed it. Uh, get your hands on, if you're interested in a deep dive, get your hands in on a copy of The Theology of Race and Place by Andrew Draper. Uh, we'll have uh, the, the main books of Willie Jennings, J. Cameron Carter, even, mm-hmm. even Brian Bantam on the show notes. Uh, we'll put that... Uh, that chapter from uh, Can Whiteness Be Saved uh, on 
so anyways, uh, this is a chance for you to really dive into these issues for and, and shape the way we engage uh, racism, the theology of race in our churches and in our culture. Thanks again for Andrew being with us. Uh, give us a review on uh, whatever platform you're using to uh, to listen to this uh, podcast. And uh, we hope to be back soon, like in two or three weeks. Mm. Two weeks. How about uh, two weeks? That's gra- uh, I don't know. That's graduation week. You think okay. so? Three weeks. Okay. Folks, we'll be Let's back with more on Theology on Mission in three weeks. Until then, it's over and out. Dave Fitch and Mike Moore. Till next time.